Let's prepare our hearts as we pray together. Again, we bow before you this morning, Lord Jesus. We acknowledge that part of your glory is uh, the revelation that comes to us through your word. That the written word has power only because it corresponds to you, the living word. And so we ask that this morning you will take words that by themselves are dead and can only kill. And I pray that you will just inspire them and fill them with your life, that they will uh, be words that impart life. You said, my words are spirit, my words are life. And so we ask you this morning to breathe your spirit into us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Wednesday, I think it was Wednesday morning, um, I usually catch a few minutes of the morning news every day while I'm having my breakfast. And I happened to catch at the tail end of, a, or maybe it was the middle, I don't know, of an interview. Uh, this guy that was being interviewed, was, I think he was an actor of some sort, and he was talking about this role that he was playing. But anyway, it was all about servants, and he was talking about how, how when people go into restaurants, all of a sudden something comes over them and they become bosses. He said when, you, when they hear the word server, it means that they begin to treat the servers like servants. And anyway, that was the rest of the interview was about that, so I didn't follow it beyond that point. Because it made my mind go to something that happened many, many years ago at Atomic Energy of Canada. It was over 35 years, so you can imagine how vivid it was in my mind. Because I realized that uh, on the one hand, while maybe some people are like that, who uh, treat other people as servants, uh, none of us like on the receiving end to want any request to be made of us, of truth to be told. Uh, and it was lunch hour, and during the lunch hour, several of the engineers would play chess, you know, and the rest of us who didn't know the game well would kind of sit on the sidelines and kibitz while we were having lunch. And so one day I was having a banana, and, and by the time I finished it, there was no waste paper basket next to where I was. So there's an engineer across the, not even the room, it's just a little cubicle. I said, hey, Ken, can you just pass me the um, um, trash can? Simple request, right? It was like a transformation came over this guy. His face all screwed up. He just kicked the can over and said, nothing like service is there. I thought, wow, all I did was ask for a garbage can, right? We live in a culture that doesn't value servants or service in the least bit. We much rather prefer to be served, whether it's in a restaurant or in a chess game. I grew up in a country like that where servants are not treated well at all and taken for granted. Israel in first century Palestine was like that. They had been in captivity for five centuries and then more. From Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, a brief respite during the time of Alexander the Great's domination, and then the cruelest of them all, Rome. And so messianic longing and expectations were always part of their religious horizon. And Jewish messianic hope in the first century centered around four things. Yahweh will return to Zion. He will take up residence in the temple, which will therefore be cleansed or rebuilt. Israel's enemies would be conquered and Israel would be enthroned in her rightful place as sovereign nation in the world. Messiahs had come and gone, but the most recent one of them named Jesus seemed to be in a different class by himself. Why he had even recently raised someone who had been dead for four days from the dead. And even the Pharisees believed that you couldn't trick anybody into doing that. And so all this hype and expectation just exploded on one Sunday morning that we have come to know as Palm Sunday. 
So people were just shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the word Hosanna means save us now. And of course saving for them meant do those four things God. Come back to Zion, take up residence in the temple, destroy your enemies and install us as rightful rulers of this world. And do that now. Imagine in that euphoric setting to suddenly hear Jesus, the object of your messianic hopes, say something like this. Or do something like this. When he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I mean, you can imagine the confusion and the chagrin if anybody heard it at all. You know. But those who did, what? What? What, are we, what are you weeping for? That doesn't sound like a Messiah who's going to go into Jerusalem and triumphantly take over. Instead, you seem to be talking to us about Jerusalem coming apart at the seams. Jesus might have said to them, he didn't, he might have said to them something like what he said to the chief priests and the Pharisees in another setting when he said, you are badly mistaken because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. He could have said that to this crowd who would react that way. Because they didn't know the scriptures and the power of God either. What scriptures do you think he would have had in mind? exactly the portion that we have come to in our study of Isaiah. Two and a half years and 48 sermons later, we're getting to the heart of this book in chapters 49 to 53. You might recall that Judah and Babylon were struggling with two big questions. The first question was, is he able to Conquer Babylon. Get us out. That was the question that was answered from chapters 40 to 47. God had a plan to deliver his people long before they ever went to Babylon. And no Babylonian god or no Babylonian king was going to be able to stop that. And that, that whole message climaxed with that judgment passage in chapter 47 we looked at two weeks ago. But you know there was a second question. The second question was, what can God do about our sin that got us into this mess in the first place? And we saw the amazing answer to that, that even though they were no different than Babylon, remember the frog in the kettle, they were no different than Babylon, but instead of the judgment of Babylon that they deserved, God was going to show His glory in His mercy and His grace in forgiving their sin. Instead of the consuming fire, they would get a refining fire. But there was a deeper question that chapter 48 did not address. You see, when God in His holiness would judge Babylon, there was no contradiction between those two actions. Holiness and judgment have no inherent contradiction in them. But when God says to a sinful people, I will overwhelm you with my mercy and my grace, there is an immediate implicit contradiction between that and the holiness of God. He's also called the Holy One of Israel. So it precipitates this question, what allows God to be gracious and merciful without compromising His holiness? That's the question that is answered in chapters 49 to 53 of Isaiah. 
It all centers on one unique individual known as the servant of the Lord. The suffering servant of the Lord. So the answer to this question. How will God gloriously deliver his people? A sinful people. By a manifestation of his grace and mercy without compromising his holiness. The answer lies in this a suffering servant. Now this is the surprising answer because it doesn't fit with the concept of a glorious God. This is what the readers of Isaiah got all confused about. This is what the leaders in Palestine missed on first on the first century on, on Palm Sunday. And this is what we miss altogether in the kind of society that we live in that glorifies being served, that does not value servants or servanthood at all. This morning I want to look at these four songs together and trace three implications for our lives. And then after the France series is over, we'll go back and look at the We'll go and do a much more detailed look at these passages. There are four servant songs. The first one of them we actually encountered several months ago in chapter 42. The only mention, the clue in the first section. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. So the first look at the servant was a servant who was chosen for a mission to bring justice to the nations of the earth. But he would do it quietly. He would do it gently. No shouting, no bullying. And success was guaranteed. That was the first servant song. The second servant song we will encounter when we pick up our study of Isaiah in detail again is chapter 49, which is where we've arrived at. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention. By the way, you're going to be listening to just a lot of scripture today, so rather, which is wonderful, you know, rather than hearing me, you just listen to him speak. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servants of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Few more hints about this servant. First of all it says he's chosen from the womb. In other words this wasn't some hasty afterthought of God. Oh my goodness what's happening? My plan's going out of control. I better come up with plan B. God has no plan B. No plan A. He has one plan. And this suffering servant was always part of the plan. He was chosen from the womb of his mother. Another thing that this song adds is that the servant struggles with his mission. He says, I have labored in vain. When that happened in Jesus' life, I don't know. But the servant struggled. God acknowledges that he will be deeply despised. Now we begin to see suggestions of hostility to his mission. And yet success is once again guaranteed. The nations and the ends of the earth will see his salvation. 
The third servant song in chapter 50 adds another dimension of the servant's ministry. Isaiah 50 verses 4 to 9. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. This is now the teaching ministry of the servant. One of the significant ways in which an accomplishment is by teaching words that God himself has taught. But this teaching will be met with scorn and contempt. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the servant does not waver and he will be vindicated and once again he will be successful. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moths will eat them up. Now these three songs set up the climactic fourth servant song, the one that we are most familiar with, Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to listen to it in its entirety. The first three are building blocks. And this fourth one intensifies the suffering. That's what it spells out in much greater detail. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? At whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made him his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When we sang a few moments ago, glorious, 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 these are the contours of glory that we don't often recognize. 
So this, this uh, climactic servant song spells out in much greater detail the suffering dimension of the servant. And yet out of this unlikely means is going to come a glorious ending. The forgiveness of transgressors. Those are the four songs taken together that paint a picture of this servant of the Lord. And the first one and the fourth one begin with the words, Behold, behold, look carefully, keep on looking at this one. This is what the leaders and the people missed on Palm Sunday. They did not understand. These are the scriptures they didn't understand now the power of God. They didn't realize that their Messiah would be a king but a servant king. A suffering servant king. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, remember chapter 50 said, I set my face like a flint. That's what he was doing. He set his face like a flint as he came to Jerusalem. He looked beyond all this explosion of euphoria and hype to what awaited him there. You see, his ministry up to this point had already given hints of fulfilling the other three servant songs. Did he not carry out his ministry without shouting? What bruised reed did he ever break? What smoldering wick did he ever quench? How gently he dealt with the people. And he worked for justice and righteousness. And who knows, who knows how he struggled with his calling. Maybe Gethsemane was the peak of that. I have labored in vain. Did Jesus know that? Well, if he was tested in every point like we are, he must have known what that was like. And then in Isaiah 50, the sovereign Lord wakens my ear morning by morning. How many times do we read in the Gospels, long before anybody else got up, he was up alone, seeking, getting marching orders. And did not people were amazed, where did this man learn to speak like this? He was given a word that sustained the weary. But having lived Isaiah 42, 49 and 50, he was now coming to live Isaiah 53 out to the fullest. And we see that in John chapter 12. John 12 is his last public ministry. John, after this, John 13 to 17, he's with his disciples. He prays the high priestly prayer. Then it's all crucifixion after that. This is his last public ministry. John chapter 12 is a critical chapter because of that. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, a semi-Gentile territory, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. When the Gentiles wanted to see Jesus, he knew his time had come. He was fulfilling Isaiah 49. It is too small a thing for you to call back the people of Israel. You will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And so when he said, Oh, the Gentiles want to see me. He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless the great... This is glory. This is not the glory they expected. This is not the glory anybody likes. But this is glory too. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he spells out what this means. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He goes on to say, for this hour I came to this world. But in these passages we find not only Jesus very clearly thinking Isaiah 53. But we get a hint for the first time that those who follow him are to take that same part. Three times he refers to us who follow him as his servants. 
And he says, where I am, my servants will be. So this recipe for dying and being raised again is not just for Jesus, but for all of us as followers. And so as I said, we will behold the servant of the Lord in much greater detail when we go back after the baggage series is over to focus much in much greater detail. But for this morning, having seen them together as a whole to give us a setting for Palm Sunday, I want to build a bridge from 800 BC to 20, 2012 AD along with three building blocks. The first building block is simply salvation. See, now, now Isaiah 49 to 53, now we see is the answer to the question, how could God be gracious and merciful to Judah while still without compromising his holiness? The answer is this suffering servant of the Lord who will take upon himself the suffering that Israel deserved, the judgment that they deserved. The crushing from God's hand that was to be their just lot was put upon him. And therefore they could be given mercy and grace without being crushed. What that says to you and me as we build a bridge for today is this. This is important. Jesus' birth, life, death and resurrection did not happen in a historical vacuum with no antecedents to it. This story doesn't just come out of nowhere. Some man who lived 2,000 years ago lived, died and rose again. That makes no sense. What makes sense, what builds credibility historically and theologically is that this was set in the context of a story that was millennia old. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, after the first sin, God said, a seed of the woman is going to come that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Even though his heel would be wounded by the serpent. And then it took Isaiah 49 to 53, 800 years before the events, to carefully spell out the building blocks. And in 53, graphically describing death by crucifixion, 800 years before it was invented as a means of punishment. It is in that context that the message of Jesus' life, death and resurrection makes sense to us. And therefore it builds credibility for us. So comes the answer for you and me. I asked the question two weeks ago. You and I are like frogs in the kettle too. If Judah was no different than Babylon in Isaiah's time, we learned that you and I are no different than the Babylon of our time. What we deserve is the judgment that is awaiting this world. But what we get instead is grace and mercy. And we get it because of Jesus. This suffering servant of the Lord actually showed up 2,000 years ago and lived it out for us. He was willing to enter Jerusalem, set his face like a flint, look beyond the hype, look to the cross and look beyond the cross to the resurrection and to bringing many sons to glory, says Hebrews. You know, I remember a conversation, I had several conversations with my father, because for those of you who are relatively new to our church, my parents lived with us for nearly 20 years, and uh, my dad was a curious man in terms of religious things, so he and I had lots of questions. There was one time he was telling me about what his, the, the, the guru that they, my mother and he followed, uh, he, he primarily instructed them in a devotional path to God. The Hindus have many different paths to God. One is devote, the path of devotion. There was a lot of singing devotional songs. So I, I said, what do you learn in these songs? And he told me. And I kind of was blown away when he told me. He said, we learned that, uh, first of all, we are not the same as God. And that's different from pantheistic Hinduism to begin with. He said, we learned that we are sinners. Uh, and we need forgiveness. But we can't earn our salvation. And it comes by God's grace. I said, that's good. That's exactly what the gospel says. <laughs> then I asked him this question. I said, but I have one more question for you. What allows your God to be gracious while still remaining holy? He said, I don't know the answer to that question. He said, well, I'm going to find out. 
I don't know whether he wrote to anybody or whatever, but he never brought that subject up again. But months later, as his cancer got a little bit worse and we knew he was heading off to hospital, he said to me, he said, he said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that if human beings need atonement, then Jesus is the only way. But I don't know whether people need atonement or not. And it was that truth that God convinced him of on that hospital bed and three days before he died, he gave his life to Jesus. So there's my first exhortation to some of you today. If there are people here who are counting upon God's grace and God's mercy, but don't know the answer to the question, how can he be that to you without compromising his holiness, then you're on dangerous ground. You can't count on God's grace and God's mercy without dealing with the holiness of God at the same time. And there's only one way that is dealt with, and that is through the suffering of Jesus. You need atonement. And that atonement was provided in Jesus. And it is through faith in Jesus that your path is then open for you to have the mercy and grace of God lavished upon you. So if you're in that position, if you're a man or a woman who's counting upon God's grace and God's mercy, you see, it's not enough to know that you're a sinner. It's not enough to know that you need forgiveness. It's not enough to ask for forgiveness. It is not enough to count on God's mercy and grace if you leave out the all crucial component that the holiness wrath of God was satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. So I would plead with you if you are in that situation today to put your faith in Jesus because you need atonement. But salvation from the penalty of sin is not just to get us into heaven to have a nice passport into heaven so we can live any way we want today. And so that leads me to the second component of this bridge. So, so worship Jesus as Savior who saves us from the penalty of sin. Sorry, that's what atonement does. But he also sanctifies us, which is a fancy word for saying he delivers us from the power of sin in our lives now. Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. Now, for this, the servant of the Lord passages are not enough. We need to get to the New Testament. In fact, even the Gospels are not enough to clarify this thing, what, how this happens. It, it is left to the epistles, especially the writings of the Apostle Paul, to help spell out this dimension of the suffering servant. Because the Bible teaches us that when we trust in this suffering servant of the Lord for our atonement, something else happens too. That we die with him. We are united with Jesus in his death. And we die to this thing called sin in our lives. You remember two weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 48, God referred to his people as rebels from birth. We're rebels at heart. Sinners by nature. And the New Testament which spells out the implications of the death of Jesus. It says that through faith in Him, we not only have our sins forgiven, but we actually die to sin. Something that is an uncontrollably powerful force in our lives is dealt a mortal blow. It is broken through the union with the suffering servant. And perhaps the person who explains it best is Paul in Romans chapter 6. Listen to these words. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? which literally means immersed. The word baptism means immersion. We were buried with him therefore by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And here's the point. We know that our old self was crucified with him. We died with Christ on the cross in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What this passage promises and teaches us is not that we cannot sin, because Christians do. It's not that we will not sin, because we will. It's not that we should not sin, although other passages teach that. What this teaches us is that you don't have to sin. That's the key. Not that you cannot, not that you will not, not that you should not, but you don't have to. This is so crucial, my brothers and sisters, because we know from human experience that the only battles we will win are the battles that we believe can be won. The only battles that we win are the battles that we believe can be won. One of the long-standing barriers to be broken in the world of athletics and track and field was the four-minute mile. Until Roger Bannister, British runner, did. I think it was the 50s. I can't remember exactly when. 54, thank you. Right. So I was pretty close, right? 50. What was amazing is that within a week or two after that, two more people did it. Because now they knew it could be done. Let me move from the field of athletics to the field of military warfare. In the 1962s, when, when there was a border skirmish between India and Pakistan, most of it was taking place up in the mountainous territory close to the Afghanistan area. And you know how te- mountainous that area is. The, the Indian Air Force had a very maneuverable plane called the NAT. But there was no place to land it in that mountainous territory. Until one daring pilot spotted a pretty precarious section that he said, I think I can land the plane there. He did. And as soon as he did, every other pilot began routinely landing it and the tide of the war turned. Why? As soon as they knew it could be done, they began to do it. The practical implications of this in your life and my life is because of the truth of Romans 6 that we are dead with, tied with Christ. Never give up on the fight against sin and the pursuit of holiness because you know the battle can be won. Never, never ever give up the fight against sin and the pursuit of holiness because you know the battle can be won. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law. You are under grace. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The exhortation to be holy is rooted in the assurance that we can be holy. We are not being exhorted to do something that we cannot do. But that is for which we are guaranteed success. So let us worship Jesus not only as Savior from the penalty of sin, but sanctifier from the power of sin in our lives as well. But neither of these just a salvation from the penalty of sin is not to just to give us a passport to heaven while we live any old lives we can. In the same way, deliverance from the power of sin is not just for a private, pietistic enjoyment of life either. Both of these things are for an outward focus of service. And that's the third thing I want to focus on. After all, he's, these are the passages of the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord. Now, service to Christ takes many different forms and shapes. I just want to comment on a couple of them because I want to focus on the, on the suffering side of it. Now, we're not going to suffer. Crucifixion is not what awaits us. Nobody's pulling out our beard and bashing us on our backs. Although Christians in many, many parts of the world are facing horrible torture and physical punishment. But for us here, uh, service still involves a kind of dying. And I want to talk about that because we need to understand that. Because Jesus said, whoever will be my followers will be my servants. Except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die. Unless we participate in glory like that, we will not experience the glory of resurrection. 
The first and most obvious way of serving is involvement in Christ's mission in the world. When Jesus said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, that you will bear fruit and remain. He used the language of servants and friends. In fact, he, used, he elevated it. Without, without removing the implications of service, he, he defined what it was when he said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. He said, because servants do not know their master's business, but friends do. And everything that I have learned from my father, I have revealed it to you. Therefore, go into the world and bear fruit. The dying, the dying comes because the mission-centered life involves some dying. You remember when Damien was here last year, when he talked about him and his wife going to the Arabian Peninsula. Remember the whole sermon was called? The death of a dream, because there was a birth of a vision. The death of a dream of uh, the place that they lived in, as opposed to now having moved four times in the first year. The death of a dream of having a, 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 an adequate enough salary that he didn't have to keep writing prayer letters asking for people to give money to buy a car and even a house, which he has to now. The death of a dream for ballet school for the kids and being homeschooled. Now for the kids to learn another language. But all of that because there was a birth of a vision. Of a self-reproducing, worshipping community being planted among unreached people groups. And we learned all throughout our missions conference that you and I are called to be partners with those who go. We, are part, we partner by giving, we partner by praying, we partner by refreshing and encouraging and relating to them. All of that involves some kind of dying. It is primarily a, a death to a life of ease and comfort. Freedom 55, as I've told you many times, has no place in the life of a Christian. Because that's the exact opposite of a corn of wheat falling to the ground and dying. It's participation in the life of the suffering servant. Then he says, it will bear fruit. Otherwise it dies alone. We save our life, we lose it. We lose our life for his sake, we find it. Now and in eternity. The second dimension of service that I want to talk about, with that we're finished, is... Just the ordinary acts of serving. Uh, Jesus talked about that. In fact, he modeled that. When he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, after his public ministry in John 12, he moves into his private ministry with his disciples. And in John 13, we read these words. After having washing the feet of the disciples, which nobody else wanted to wash. Try uh, to imagine what it was like to be there, right? We always focus upon Jesus. Have you taken a bit of time to think what you would have felt like? If any one of those 12 people had the opportunity to do that, probably that was the job of a servant, right? We're not servants. In fact, they were busy arguing as who were the greatest in the kingdom until he began washing their feet. That couldn't have been comfortable. And then he said this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant. Ah, oh, there we are. He's calling us that name again. You know, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is what John Ortberg called the ministry of availability. So involvement in Christ's mission is a more obvious kind of gift-oriented ministry that each one of us does differently. The ministry of availability is what is common for all of us, which is just simply being available to help people. 
And let me remind you of what Ortberg and Richard Foster wrote about this. God has never exempted any of his children from this ministry because it is a vital part of his character development curriculum. Nobody is too good to perform the lowliest task. Much of this ministry is carried out behind the scenes where no one will ever see what you are doing. It is the secret service aspect of this ministry that makes it so powerful in helping promote your character into the image of Christ. And then he quotes Richard Foster, Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in secret. The flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. That's where the dying comes in, right? It's a clamor for recognition. For the honor that is due our having served. I think I mentioned to you at the beginning of Lent this year, uh, God didn't particularly impress upon my heart the need to give up anything. Instead, it was to focus on two things. Not defending myself, because words are an issue in my life. I use them all the time. And the Bible says where words are many, sin is not very far behind. And then secondly, to, to avail of every opportunity for secret service. And let me tell you, if you'll pardon the pun, not eating cake is a piece of cake compared to this. It's much easier to not, not eat cake or not watch television than consistently serve without ever being noticed. Try it, then you'll know. This is not to die a spectacular death, taking a bullet in your head for your spouse. Every one of us will do that, right? Even a non-risk taker like me, I wouldn't have to think twice about stepping in front of a bullet for my wife or my children. Oh, but a thousand bullets dying slowly every day. Each time when you choose to serve and nobody notices. But that's God doing it. Not your wife, not your spouse, not your children, not the people in the church. Each time that happens, you see, oh, that's, that's how much I'm not like Jesus. That's how much I don't like to serve. That's how much I need recognition and vindication and approval. Die, die, die. Because blessed are you. Because you are becoming more and more and more like Jesus. So you start at home, of course. That's the most obvious place, right? And by the way, if you think you can't serve in secret in the home, there's lots of opportunities. There's lots of opportunities to serve in ways that nobody will notice what you've done. And then in the church. Then in your offices. Then in your neighborhoods. And all because of this motivation that there is no greater blessedness than progressive transformation into Christ's likeness. So, come let us worship Jesus as Savior who saves us from the penalty of sin. Come let us worship Jesus as Sanctifier who delivers us from the power of sin. And come let us worship today as the suffering servant who inspires us to serve. I have a suggestion for you during this. It's Monday today. We've got four days before Good Friday. There are four servant of the Lord pastors and four gospels. I have a suggestion if, you, if you're not already on some kind of a reading program, especially for each day, you may, from, from Monday, you may want to look at Isaiah 42, the first servant of the Lord passage, and read the Passion account in Matthew's gospel. For Tuesday, look at Isaiah 49 and read the Passion account in Mark's gospel. For Wednesday, read Isaiah chapter 50 and read the Passion account in Luke's gospel. And then for Thursday, 
uh, read Isaiah 53 and look at the Passion account in John's Gospel. The fulfillment. Be one way in which you want to prepare yourself for Good Friday. And as you do, this is my blessing for you. May the truth that there is no greater blessedness than progressive transformation into Christ-likeness so remain in the forefront of your thinking by the reminding work of the Holy Spirit that you will seize each opportunity for service that God sets before you this week. Go in Jesus' name.